Hi, I'm George Tekmachov, and this is another Easton Target Archery podcast. Today, another archery legend. 34 years ago this week, Jay Bars defeated the top archer of Korea to become the Olympic champion in Korea. Something that took a long time for them to recover from. <laughs> I'd like to think so. Hey, Jay. Thanks for joining us tonight. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Jay, we've had you on the podcast before, and um, it's been a while. I think it might be appropriate for some of our newer listeners to get reacquainted with you a little bit. These days, Jay Bars, you are a coach. You Ish. are, a, yeah, okay. We can talk <laughs> about that a bit. As well as, um, you know, working in the medical industry and, um, you know, doing a lot of things still with archery. You're doing seminars with Dick Tone for Lancaster Archery Supply. Um, got many hundreds of people every year coming to those seminars and learning from you and from Dick. Mainly from Dick. <laughs> I'm more comic relief. Yeah. Well, they need that, you know. And uh, I would say, of all the archers I know who've won Olympic gold medals, yours has had more people physically have their hands on it than anybody else. You're kind of renowned for for that, you know? I think it's kind of cool. Well, I mean, if somebody wants to see one, I've got one, and here it is. Yeah. Knock yourself out, yeah. Got, got to the point where you had to wash the ribbons. Oh, I've, I wash the ribbons about every two years. I get so dirty from people touching them and wearing them and yeah they've it's probably been worn by more people than most gold medals have yeah. over the years yeah let's reminisce a little bit about that uh, event 34 years ago in Seoul yeah keep saying 34 years <laughs> jackass <laughs> hey this is a family friendly podcast so watch your language the um, the remarkable thing of course is that uh, arguably a simpler time you know this past week we got the sad news of the passing of a mutual friend of ours, Francesco Necchi Rusconi. President of FIDA. Yep, President of FIDA. Who, among other accomplishments, created the Grand FIDA Round, which was contested at those Olympic Games that you competed in in 1988. Um, by the time you were in your second Olympic Games in 1992, the round had changed to what we're familiar with today. But, you know, back then, it was the big experiment to try to make archery more accessible to television and the media. You know, we used to have, of course, the double feet around where you'd shoot 288 arrows over four days and it was basically completely unwatchable. It was arguably, I would say, maybe a very pure expression of our sport on a certain level, but it was not television friendly at all. No. I mean, you got four guys per target most of the time. So <clears throat> it was impossible at, to, to tell what was happening. Well, yeah, and at 90 meters, you've got, you know, 24 arrows in the target. At 70 meters, 24 arrows in the target. Yeah. 50 and 30, you know, you had 12 arrows in the target. And even as an archer, it was hard to tell where your arrows were. And as a spectator, it's impossible. So all you could really do is watch the leaderboard, which was updated every couple ends so sometimes. It was a lot like watching paint dry. Yeah. But the Grand Feeder round that you shot in 1988 for the Olympic Games was the first attempt at a round that would be more accessible for television. And there's two outcomes from that. One, we did get more attention for archery on television. True. And you particularly, with a lot of the stuff you did um, and the image that you brought to the sport, 
revolutionized, arguably, the image of archery at that time. You had the flat top haircut. You had the headphones, and you were rocking out to Motley Crue and others. Sammy Hagar. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it had a big impact because the media picked up on it. You became kind of a, for archery's uh, level, a real media star for those Olympic Games. Yeah, relatively speaking. I mean, yeah, I said for archery's level. Yeah, <laughs> which is a pretty <laughs> low bar, to be sure. But all joking aside, you know, um, you know, from a kid from Florida and Colorado to Olympic star was a big deal. Oh, no, it was a big deal for me, trust me. But it, And I wasn't doing that because it was something for the media. I was doing it because it's what I did, and it took my mind off shooting. And, you know, I could shoot my three arrows and go back and put my headphones on and not be at the Olympic Games yeah. or the World Championships or wherever it was I was. Yeah, there's a compelling story that you tell about the preparation that you made for those Olympic <clears throat> Games in terms of mental visualization, preparation, and... Uh, was that your first time in Korea? Uh, yes. When you got to Seoul? And my last time in Korea. Yeah. And also, um, the week before, at least, you were in Japan? Yeah, so we had, we had gone over. Right? Yeah, we had gone over a week early to get used to the time zone and do a little bit of training over there, which for the U.S. team was something way different. We usually got to major tournaments <clears throat> the day before the practice day. Um, if we were lucky, it was the day before the unofficial practice day, but... Other countries had been there for like weeks and we'd show up and they're like, where have you been staying? Like, what do you mean? Where have we been staying? Like, well, you've been here for like a week, haven't you? Like, no, we just got here today. <laughs> they used to just shake their heads and like, like, why? Well, and so that was the first real attempt from the NAA at the time. Correct. National Archery Association, for those of you who don't remember or know, uh, that was before USA Archery, just like it was FIDA. Federation Internationale de Tiro Arc before it became World Archery. But yeah, that was the first time that um, I guess you'd say a standard thing now, letting your shooters get enough time to get into the time zone. I mean, you know, even a week is actually not enough. But it's better than... It's better than two days. Yeah, better than landing and then headed to the practice field, which is uh, what happened a lot back in the day. So, you're in Japan, you're practicing... Any particular drills or anything that you were working on when you were in that mode? No, I was just doing my normal practicing. I mean, it was, I wasn't changing anything up in my mind. It was another tournament, and I really wanted to win it. What kind of arrow volumes were you shooting back then? Um, for me, a typical day, or kind of my baseline day, was 300 arrows. I would always shoot at least a double feeder. A day? Yeah, and that was the base. That was the minimum. And then there was, you know, a lot of four or 500 arrow days in there. Now, um, during this time, you were at Arizona State University. And you'd been studying uh, in a business degree uh, program. And you'd taken some time off for those Olympic Games. But you were still practicing at ASU, right? Yeah, I was still shooting at ASU. But I dropped out of school 13 hours short of my degree on a full-ride scholarship, much to my mother's chagrin. Um, I, I should point out, you did go back and finish. Eventually, after my second Olympics in 92, I did go back in 93 and finally finished my last semester. But Because uh, I told my mother I would, and I'm very scared of my mother. A, so. As you should be. Dot is renowned <laughs> for her... Dot is not to be trifled with. No. She's five foot two inches of... Of pure... Pure, mean, <laughs> left-handed southern woman. Okay, let's be serious and recognize she's that she's probably one of the nicest people we know. <laughs> 
Yeah, but she doesn't put up with it from her kids, especially. Well, so. you know, she was always very nice to me, but I, I imagine being her kid would be a different story. However, you turned <laughs> out all right. Well, I'm not in jail. <laughs> Call that a success. What was your typical day like at ASU when you were shooting at the quad? While I was in school? Yeah, no, well, when you're preparing for the games. Oh, so, yeah, when I was shooting for the... So I would generally go out and start shooting, um, much to Dick Tone, my coach's chagrin, at about 9 o'clock in the morning when it was already 100 degrees. He's more of a 6.30 in the morning guy. Like um, most sensible people in Arizona. Correct, but I figured if I could shoot in 115, I could shoot anywhere. So I'd usually start out at 90, and some days I'd shoot... You know, a full feet, so I'd shoot 90, 70, 50, 30. And I was normally by myself, so I was shooting six arrows at a time. Then I'd go have some lunch, and I'd come back out. And if I'd struggled at a distance, I may shoot another, you know, two rounds at that distance, like another 72 arrows at that distance. And if not, then I'd usually go back to 90, and sometimes I'd shoot a full feet at 90. Um, I spent most of my time at 90 meters. Now, ASU had a renowned archery program at the time. Um, you had other archers around sometimes. Oh, no, absolutely, to, yeah. And sometimes, as a result, you'd shoot a lot more arrows than the normal 300 a day. Yeah, well, like I said, 300 was the minimum. That was the minimum. Um, but, yeah, there was a few days where I'd be out there and I'd get ready to leave the field and somebody would show up and go, hey, stay and shoot with me for a little while. I'd be like, all right. So I'd stay and shoot another however many, couple hundred with them. And then I'd be ready to leave, and somebody else would show up. And I'm like, ah, i got to go get some dinner. And like, oh, let's go get some dinner, and we'll come back out and we'll shoot some more. And so, yeah, there was days when it got up into the seven, 800 range. Days. 800 a day at Yeah, times. no, that didn't happen a lot. I'm not going to lie. I'm not. But it happened. Because I, I, back then, I charted every arrow I shot. It's a lot of arrows in Phoenix weather. Yeah, once you get used to it. Absolutely. It's probably a reason I'm bald. <laughs> not wearing a hat, 115. Well, you had a lot of hair back then. No, not really, but I got a lot less now. <laughs> field archery has been another uh, big thing for you. Love field. And actually, that was a family thing for you guys, right? Well, when I was a kid in Florida, that it was National Field Art, NFAA. Um, that's what we mainly shot. Now, my parents were a member of a club. It was an NFAA club and Fort Caroline Archers. And so that's what we shot was field. We didn't know what FIDA was um, until it got back in the Olympics in 72. And then a guy that was in the Navy and was stationed in Jacksonville, uh, Russell Sill, and he shot with John Williams, who was in the Army. And they were on their respective um, teams. Yeah. Because they had those back then in the military. Yeah. They all had teams for different sports. John and Russell were traveling together sometimes, Correct. right? And so yeah. Russell's the one that kind of showed showed us what a FIDA was all about. And he'd shoot 90 meters in our yard in Jacksonville, Florida. And um, I thought that was pretty cool, but we were still field archers. And it wasn't long after that that we moved to Colorado and there wasn't archery. So I quit shooting, started ski racing, figured out I wasn't going to be very good at that because I hadn't seen snow until I was 12. Um. Yeah, but, but, you know, here's the thing about you. You're kind of a natural athlete with a lot of stuff. You can pick up a tennis racket, pick up a golf club. Well, I played tennis in high school. You can still shoot your age in golf. And baseball. I cannot shoot my age in golf. Okay, but you're For nine out. holes, I can shoot a 60. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you know, it's interesting about Russell Sill, though. I didn't realize that he was the one who introduced you to Fida Archery yeah. at the time. And John Williams, who we did a podcast with uh, a few episodes ago, but more than a few now. Uh, but recently, we just put up a post about uh, listening to that podcast where he was able to recount his experience as the first Olympic champion of the modern times. Uh, he talks about his travels with Russell <laughs> and uh, kind of living out of a van and yep. eating so, a lot of McDonald's. Yeah, Russell was a NCAA wrestler. He was on scholarship at, I'm going to get this wrong, it was either Iowa or Iowa State. A place where wrestling's a big deal. Big deal. And he was really good and then blew out his knee, I believe, if I remember right, and wanted to play some sport. and Chose archery? Chose archery. So that's when he started archery? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Pretty he ended remarkable. up, I think he ended up fifth or sixth at the trials in, nine, in 72. Um, but yeah, Russell was not your typical archery build. <laughs> he, yeah. That was a beast. Yeah. Well, sometimes that core strength can be a useful thing, depending on, depending on things. But uh, you weren't built that way. You were built more like John Williams and Daryl Pace. Yes. Taller than Daryl. Not sure about John. I think we're about the same height. I think yeah, John's, John's about uh, six foot. Like six one. Yeah. Oh, then he's taller than me. Yeah. And I think that uh, for a long time, that alignment advantage that guys like you have had was a big thing in our sport. I think it helps, but I mean, it's not it's not the end all be all. But I think it definitely helps to have less chest and arms for your arrow. You know, your string to have to clear. Um, but so. again, you know, you're you're one of those all-around athlete kind of guys. I mean, you know, really handy with a tennis racket, really handy with a golf club, baseball, that kind of thing. Yeah, I do all right. I mean, you did some baseball in high school. Yeah, I played when I was a kid in Florida. I wanted to be a baseball player so bad I could taste it. Um, but my sophomore year in high school, when I realized I was five feet three inches tall and weighed ninety-three pounds, the major leagues was probably wet. probably out of my reach. Yeah, had a good bat, had a good glove, had no arm, and was they timed me with a calendar when I ran the bases. So, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I played. Do you think that uh, field archery had a big impact on your ability to shoot feet arounds down the road? Oh, for sure. People that don't shoot field at all I think you're missing out because when you get to where you can shoot up and down hills and you you feel weird and the shot doesn't feel right and your form definitely doesn't feel right and you're standing you know on the side of a mountain and you're doing all of that and you can still make an arrow go in the middle you realize okay this doesn't have to be perfect to be a 10 it's just got to be a good shot. Flat fields sure feel easy after that. And then when you, yeah, when you get on a feet of field and you look at the size of the gold and you know exactly how far it is, it's like, this is easy. Like, I don't have to worry about knocking off yardage. I don't have to worry about the slope of the mountain. I don't have to worry about where the sun is. All I got to do is stand here and shoot at that thing. Yeah, that got a lot easier in a hurry. Tell us about your world field championships. What was your first one? Uh, 90, 1990. So in 88, I was bronze, won the bronze. And then in 90... In, in field. In field. Yeah. And then in... 90, Same year that you won the gold medal in the Olympic Games, you won the bronze medal at the world field. Yeah, about a month and a half before the games, I think, was the world field. Um, and then I won the world championships in 92 and again... Sorry, 90 and again in 92. And then I won the world games in 2001. In uh, Japan? Yes. Akita, Japan. Uh, indeed. 
And uh, that's sort of a trifecta, if you think about it. Olympic Games, World Games, and World Field. Yeah. Not too many shooters have accomplished that. You've also done some good stuff indoors, too, of course. I hated indoors. But, yeah, I won. Uh, I was a silver medalist at the first World Indoor. In, in Ulu, Finland? Ulu, Finland. Um, and then I won, I think, four national indoors. You but. also won a very notable event that took place in Paris. Yes. Which was arguably one of the first really big uh, media-slash-spectator events. The French Federation did a great job putting on this archery exhibition at the Zenit Theater in Paris. And you were there with guys like Sebastian Flute and Andrea Parenti and a number of other luminaries from our sport. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, so they invited... I want to say 12 or 16 of the top archers in the world at that time. Um, paid for us to go there. They had like $10,000 first prize. Um, it was in the, the hall. Was it Zenit yeah. Hall? And I believe it was our opera house. Or yeah, it's also an ice skating rink. And yeah. I mean, it's a big theater kind of. And I mean, it was the first time. I mean, a lot of the world games are, are sorry, uh, world cups are kind of that way now. But the first that was the first time they had... You know, introduced the archers in the spotlight, and the place was full of people, and they had big screens up so you could see the targets and the archer, and, um, you know, you were introduced individually, and you came out in a spotlight and music, and it was it was a big deal. And, and this shot, is about 94, 93, 94? Yeah, it would have been like 93. Yeah. And, and again, you know, that was an initiative from the French Federation. Of course, Sebastian Flute had won the Barcelona Olympic Games the year before, um, where you went out in the quarterfinals to the eventual bronze medal winner, Simon, Simon Terry, Terry, who unfortunately passed away uh, last year. Lost a one-arrow shoot-off. Yeah. And Simon, um, you know, another great shooter, but, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was a huge event in, in Paris yeah. the year after the Olympic Games. And Sebastian Flute, of course... To this day, still a huge influence on what is still the biggest archery federation in our sport, you know, in terms of sheer numbers. More than 70,000 people in, in France belong to the French Federation. You know, here in the U.S., it's up to 20-something thousand. And, uh, you know, a lot of those are kind of paper members because of uh, other circumstances. But, you know, in, in France, you know, something on the order of 70% uh, of those shooters are still recurve shooters. But the French Federation did something spectacular with that particular event, which you won. Yes, yes, I did. I actually beat Sebastian Flute. So it couldn't have worked out better for them because the 88 Olympic gold medalists from the United States, which everybody hated, <laughs> and the 92 Olympic gold medalists from France, which everybody loved, ended up in the finals. And um, it was How funny. There was one little group of people up in the very top of the auditorium that were rooting for me for some reason. I don't know why, but they small were. Group. Small group. Very small group. And a big vocal group. But vocal. They yeah. were vocal group, but not as big as Sebastian's group. But, Which was uh, also vocal. Yes. Um, and there was actually a picture on the cover of the U.S. Archer of me, and I, I'm... It looks like I'm saying I'm number one. I'm holding up my finger and I'm pointing. pointing but what I'm group. doing is I'm pointing to that group of people that were cheering for me up there. If you look close, the angle my hand's at and where I'm looking, I'm actually looking at this little group of people up there that were cheering for me, and I was thanking them because they were the only ones in the place that <laughs> were cheering for me. So, Pretty cool. 
And, uh, you know, I mean, I think that that set the stage, maybe inspired, as you pointed out, things like World Cup now, you know, in terms of the presentation and how that sort of thing is done. The French kind of led the way in terms of uh, that sort of event yeah, for our I, sport. And what made it interesting was that, you know, the big screens, we're shooting 18 meters, of course, but the big screens were so the fans could actually see where the arrow was. Now, some archers reacted differently to this kind of focused attention than others. Yes. Yes. Are you our, speaking of Andrea Parente? Our mutual friend, Andrea Parente, <laughs> had friend. an interesting reaction. Yes, he turned into Elvis. Um, <laughs> he pulled up to shoot his first arrow in the... Uh, so we shot in pools. So there was a, four pools. And the top two guys out of each pool made it... Um, or no, there was two pools, I think. And then the top two, so four people made it into the head-to-head part of it. I can't remember. I'm old. Anyway, got out of the pools. The first head-to-head match, you're on the stage, just you, you and the other you. guy, right? And Andrea pulled up his first arrow, and his he's right-handed, and his left leg started shaking. Like he looked like Elvis Presley. I kid you not. And he let down, and he looked at his leg like it wasn't his. And he was like, you could just tell he just had this look on his face, like. I don't know what's going on. Of course, the clock's running, so he pulls up again, and his leg starts pumping away again. And, I mean, he, he there's no way he could even keep his sight on the target. And, and let's understand, this guy is a super competent shooter. Even today. Oh, yeah, he's won two or three world field championships yeah. and was one of the top Italian shooters. And I mean, the guy was a stud. Yeah, we're not, we're not mentioning this to, to make fun or make light of what happened to him, but it was so alien, this kind of experience, to so yeah, many Yeah, we had people. never shot in front of a crowd when it's just you. Yeah. I mean, you've shot in front of big crowds, but it was the whole field was shooting. Yeah, but the whole focus was on you. Yeah, that was it. That was just two guys, just like what the World Cups are now. Yeah. And that was brand new um, back then. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he... <laughs> and so he finally was about to run out of time, and he flung an arrow down there and missed. <clears throat> and then once that happened, he was fine the rest of the time. Pressure was off. Yeah, because he knew, I guess. But yeah. yeah, the way he looked at his leg, though, it was like, what is this? Whose leg is this? Who are you, and yeah. why are you attached to my body? And it was, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Fifteen national field championships, if I'm counting right. I think so. Yeah, that's uh, still, as far as I'm aware, an unmatched record. Yeah, I'm sure Brady's got to be getting close. Uh, he's working on it, but I he hasn't gotten there yet, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. And uh, so you know, field archery has always been a strong part of your legacy yeah and it's weird because i never shot it like everybody assumed i shot a lot of field. practiced it yeah or shot tournaments i mean i shot one field tournament a year and that was field nationals now with that said back in the day you and me and your wife janet would go up in the canyons sometimes and take turns lugging a target around yeah and work on yeah but generally it was pretty much right before the yeah that was like two three weeks before nationals i mean that was it for practice yeah like a month before i would get you know, set my bow up, make sure it was right for field. I'd get switch your marks. back to my aces. If I was, you know, once X10s came out, I'd get my aces back out and get my marks and make sure I remembered how to judge yardage um, and just get used to shooting at the target face because it is different. Yeah. And then we'd shoot some up and downhill stuff in the mountains, as you mentioned, and then we'd go to the tournament. And when I won my first world field, the European guys were like, how much field do you shoot? And I said, including the world field? And they're like, yeah, I go two a, two a year. If it's a world field year, if it's a 
not a world field year. I shoot one, and that's our nationals. And they weren't happy about that because a lot of those guys only shot field. Yeah. That's all they did. In fact, some of them in some federations are only allowed. They have to pick. Yeah, the French Federation, I don't know if they still do, but for the longest time, you could only shoot field or target. You couldn't do both, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. And Carol Ferreau, for example, another illustrious field (laughs) shooter, was only allowed to shoot field. Yeah. She would have probably done very well in target archery, but, you know, she she had to choose, and she chose field, and... Even if you only shoot it for fun occasionally, if you're a target archer, do it. It's yeah. so worth it. Yeah. You learn so much about your shot. And you know the other thing? It's fun. Oh, it's a blast. Every and shot's different. I think it's Every really Every target's important. different. you got to think about it. It's way, way more thinking than target archery. Yeah. You've made How much the comment the, before that uh, field archery is for the thinking archer. It is. And to me, it's way more fun. And it. I think it can only help your your target archery. Yeah, well, I that's how I agree. looked at it. It was a great break from target, and it made me really pay attention to things that you don't have to at target archery, um, which made target archery this that much easier. You know, the only reason I made a world field team and subsequently a world games team is because you chose not to compete that year uh, at that particular. You chose not to take the slot for the team. Did you make the team? I did. There you go. You made the team. Well. I have you to thank for you, it. You have nobody to thank. You, you can only <laughs> shoot against whoever shows up, and you did. Yeah, well. And I still have the T-shirt you brought me, by the way. Oh, yeah. I never got one for myself, but I made sure you got one. The um, That event in Croatia was a game changer for me personally, you know, being able to shoot that world field. And uh, big confidence builder making a world team for the United States, you know. And you've done it so many times that I think... To this day, that perhaps except for Brady, you've been on more U.S. world field and target teams than than most shooters. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Rick and Daryl. We well, okay, yeah. Uh, woof, those guys made everything. Yeah, I mean, those they, two fellows are on a different level yeah, for that sort of thing. Yeah, um, for sure. But, you know, experience-wise, um, what experience would you partake to your listeners if they have the opportunity to shoot internationally. Let's start with things like packing. You've always been a big proponent of packing light. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, it's Europe, yeah. so they tend to wear the same clothes quite frequently now, over now. there. <laughs> I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm telling you the way it is. Yeah, okay. Um, but, yeah, don't pack like an American, um, you know. Janet and I, when we travel and make these teams. Janet, by the way, also a world field medalist. Bronze medalist, yeah. Um, but when we make a team together, we'd take suitcases that were basically carry-on size and still have plenty of clothes. And other people were taking wardrobe size suitcases. <laughs> yes, that's what I was driving at. Yeah, so, I mean, you just got to learn what works for you, and it's different for everybody, but you got to remember you can, you know... You can wear the same pair of jeans for five or six days unless you spill something on them. And, you know, you alternate shirts, and once the tournament starts, you're really only in your civilian clothes for a few hours at night, and you just re-wear them. And the only people that know you're in the same clothes is your own team. And if you have, if you're there for 10 days and you've got five shirts and two pair of pants and you mix and match, that's a bunch of different outfits at the end of the day, and you're probably going to be wearing a jacket over it most of the time anyway because it's usually cool over in Europe. So 
you don't need near as much as you think you need. You're better off to take stuff you need for archery. Did you ever total up the number of countries you've shot in? Not that I've shot in. I've been to 38 countries, I and, believe, and most of them more than once. And most of those with a bow and arrow, even oh, if for it's sure. just to do seminars or... Oh, yeah, if it wasn't for archery, I'd probably still have never left the U.S., but... Um, yeah, I've been very fortunate to get to travel and see the things I've done. And you're uh, you're doing coaching today, and coach you have a, a number bit. of talented shooters that are, you know, um, up and coming, and maybe uh, working on some stuff. What what do you work on with those shooters? What's your philosophy as a coach? It depends on the shooter, but basically, it's way easier than you think it is. People make this sport way too hard. Um, it's pretty simple when you get down to the basics of it but you pull the string you let go you pull the bow you point the bow you let go of the string that's pretty much all there is to it um and believe me if i can be good at it anybody can all right well joking aside though but i'm not joking it's it's um and again everybody's different but most people way overthink it yeah. most people think everything has to be perfect including the shot um and if you're one of those people, please read the book Golf is Not a Game of Perfect by Bob Rotel. Um, if you can shoot consistently good arrows, you can be a really good archer. It doesn't have to be a perfect arrow to be a 10. You shoot consistently good arrows. That's all you need to do. Yeah. Um, back in the double feet of days, when you shot 288 arrows, I won. I remember at least three tournaments I won where I was fourth or fifth in 10 count, but I won the tournament. And this was total score. Which is a consistency thing. Right. I didn't miss the gold hardly ever. So other guys, and it wasn't like I was 15 tens behind first place, but I didn't have as many tens. I was, like I said, fourth or fifth in 10 count, but I rarely missed the nine ring when other guys were maybe shooting a few more tens, but they shot a lot more sevens and eights. There's another lesson I learned from you many years ago, maybe... 30 years ago. Don't eat yellow snow? No, that's another oh, lesson. Okay. The one that I pass on to a lot of people when I do a seminar, and it has to do with ego and keeping your ego in check, and also putting things in perspective as a shooter. And the perspective I'm talking about is, I mean, just to put it bluntly, you told me one time, hey, just shoot the arrow. Don't fuss about it. Don't worry about what your score is going to be. Don't worry about the result because at the end of the day, people who love you are still going to love you and people <laughs> who don't like you very much are still not going to like you very much. It's not, it doesn't define who you are, your, your result in a competition. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, and it's, it's easy to say it, it is difficult to do because we all have some ego and we all like to do well. And, you know, when you're not shooting well, it's easy to get angry, but... And for me, that was, if I wasn't shooting well, it was embarrassing. I mean, I thought people would be, you know, ah, he got lucky or he was a fluke or whatever. And turns out nobody gives a darn. Thank you. Um, how you shoot, except for you and maybe your coach. Right. If somebody comes up to you at a tournament and asks how you shot, what they're asking is, did I beat you? Yes. They don't care how you shot. They right. want to know if they beat you. Right. Um, and so if you win a tournament or you come in dead last at a tournament to your, to what you said earlier, the people that like you are still going to like you. The people that hate you are still going to hate you. And the people that don't know you have to make up their own mind. 
So archery is what you do. It's not who you are. And that's easy. It's really easy to say, but man, it's hard. It's hard to live that. The other J-Bars lesson that I applied successfully to my own archery involves the idea that you shouldn't really dilly-dally too long and just get up there, shoot your arrows, get off the line. Well, yeah, thinking you can do nothing good thinking. Um, and, I mean, my coach, Dick Tone, that's what he drilled into my head was focus, rhythm, and timing, focus, yep. rhythm, and timing. So once you start your motion of shooting that first arrow, it should be an unbroken motion for three arrows. There should be no stopping, thinking, mulling over, none of that. Once you start that motion, you stay in motion. You sh- and it doesn't, you're not rushing, yeah, but you're difference. shooting in a constant rhythm. You're not... You're never stopping, and, and Dick pointed this out years ago. If you look at who wins these tournaments most often, it's the person with the best rhythm and timing. Yeah, even now today, it's absolutely true. And if you do nothing else in your archery career but develop really good rhythm and timing, you will get better Yeah. if you don't change anything. You could have the worst form on the planet, but if you had good rhythm and timing, you're going to shoot pretty well. And if you don't believe it, look at any of the top Koreans today. They all generally have... Rhythm and timing. Focus, rhythm, and timing. It's it's rare that they stop between arrows. Something right. probably happened or they needed to take a break. But generally... You just don't see it very often. No. Um, and one of the results of this is you're one of the first people off the line traditionally. Oh, yeah. For, for my day, I shot really fast. Well, even today, I shoot pretty fast, and I'm old and can't hit anything. But... My normal three-arrow rhythm from the time they blew the whistle to the time I walked off the line was about 40, 45 seconds. And you had two and a half minutes back then. Yeah. Um, and that was just... Because, again, standing there thinking about it um, is not going to help you. <laughs> you need to just let go and let your body do what it does and not overthink it. And to me, the worst thing that cracks me up is somebody shoots an, a bad arrow. And then looks at it with their scope or with their binoculars. You knew it was a bad arrow and it left your friggin' fingers. And you're not going to get it back. Why are you looking? You knew it was bad when it left. What is it telling you other than, yep, it was a bad arrow. You knew it was bad when you shot it. You're not learning anything from it. All you're doing is reinforcing Reinforce, the negative aspect. Exactly. Why would you look at a bad arrow? That You can learn nothing from it. Even if it went in the tin ring, you still can't learn anything because you can't reproduce that bad arrow. Stop it. Leave it in the past where it belongs. <clears throat> and move forward. I will get off my soapbox for a minute. Well, I kind of like the soapbox. And I'm, I'm sure that that lesson right there may be very valuable for a few people. <laughs> it's just, I just never understood it. Well, I'll tell you what. I promised you we'd keep it to half an hour. So we'll wrap it up for now. But we'll talk again soon. Because Excellent. I think that there's a lot more to talk about. And... Um, one of the things I want to talk to you about is equipment and putting it in perspective. So we'll, we'll save that one for later. J-Bars, I want to thank you very much for taking the time. Always a blast, Mr. Tekmachov. Hi, I'm George Tekmachov. This is Eastern Target Archery Podcast number 192. And I've got a very important guest. Where? Quit looking around. You know <laughs> it's you. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Greg Easton. Evening, George. Evening, Greg. Glad to, glad to be here. I'm really glad you're here, too, and am very honored to be here because tonight is the celebration with all of your employees, many of them past and present, 
of 100 years of Easton. And this is really the first time I've seen this many Easton, Hoyt, Delta McKenzie, Easton, Indiana. I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving somebody out. Oh, yeah, ESDF Foundation. Yep. Um, in one place. It's, it's really fantastic. Uh, yeah, it is. It's great to have everybody here. <clears throat> you know, the security was quite challenging, right? Make sure everybody's safe. No, sure. uh, just just getting there. No, it's great to have everybody here uh, from all the divisions. We've invited all the employees, their plus one significant other, who they want to bring. And I think our, our SCPs was someplace north of 600. So it was great to get them all here and um, show off the center a little bit. But I don't think anybody recognizes it as a Archer Center now because it's been so well decorated by the team really led by Lorena Milner in my office. I mean, she did a fantastic job and I wish I could take credit as I told Randy Walk, he came a lot of, as did some other uh, former employees and I told Randy, you know, I just, uh, I just told him what I thought was a good idea and got out of the way and he said, you know, that's what happens when you got good people. So we Yeah, and you know, you're right. I, we're here at the Eastern Archery Center, by the way, in Salt Lake City, Utah. When I walked in, I had a moment of whatever you'd call it when you don't really know where you are. Like, you're in a familiar place, but suddenly it's unfamiliar. Yep. And just a little bit of decoration, and it made a huge difference. This is a great facility, by the way, for the purpose of this kind of event. It's worked out, it's worked out well. I mean, they put in the, uh, the museum, which was, some folks may have seen it in, in Vegas. Right. Also in um, Louisville. Right. With the NFA events. And we brought it here. It's going to be here for a while, and it's great to see it set up there. So that was part of the part of the entry there with, you know, some pipe and drape to kind of dress things up. And then what they did with the main hall and uh, some uh, banners hanging from the ceiling and things that help with the acoustics really made it a, a great party facility. Yeah, and it's been great. I, I will tell you that I have seen some folks that I haven't seen in years, and I've seen some familiar faces. But never before have I seen the human element of all the Easton companies in one place at the same time. This really, you know, just as somebody on the outside looking in a little bit, it really gives you an idea of the human scope of what it is to make products in the USA, to make them in Indiana, Utah, and Iowa. Iowa, yep. And there are people behind every single product that goes out the door. We get to see them, their significant others. It was nice you gave tribute to those you know those significant yeah. others at home right you know in your in your speech earlier tonight and you know it's really true what you said that those people who are working every day at one of the eastern companies are are able to go home and, and have a great experience working for the company and um you know, right, this, yeah, is, this yeah. isn't a pitch for employment, but you know there are jobs open. There so, are, yeah. Come, you know. No, yeah, I was, you know, I thought about it. What makes companies prosper over a yeah. hundred years? Yeah, and, exactly. And thought, you know, it's the culture, which is a lot of different things. But I really tried to boil it down to. I had a short window of the, for the speech. I didn't want to bore everybody, but really said, you know, it comes down to the culture of really valuing the people and making them feel valued when they're here at work. Because I think they feel valued here. They can go have a good day at work. Go home. Hey, how was your day? I had a great day. Have a good day at good day and evening at home and then come back the next day and do it again and if it feeds on itself you have a great a great culture and that's what we try to build make well, sure people are valued you know there's there's stuff that Easton makes that that doesn't apply to this but the vast majority of the stuff that goes out the door at Hoyt that goes out the door at Delta McKenzie that goes out the door at Easton Indiana and that goes out the door at Salt Lake the plant being one mile away from where we're sitting right now here at the Easton Archery Center is really I would say meant for the enjoyment of archers 
for the enjoyment of individuals to be able to play in their sport, to compete in their sport at the highest levels. But there is a person behind every single one of those arrows. Every one of those arrows, we used to like to say, has a story to tell. But conversely, there's, a, there's an American worker behind every single one of those arrows. And when you see an event like we have tonight, we'll have a few photos up on our Easton Facebook page for people to be able to see a few things, but it really brings home the idea that we have something extraordinary at Easton, which is a family-owned company that has finished its first century and you know, is set up well with your stewardship, with the stewardship of the executive team you've got in place to continue that legacy going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, the, the employees, you know, they, they care about what they're doing. I know that I've often said, especially when I was running the Eastern Division, trying to get the people connected to the arrow, right? And, and a lot of that when you're going through the factory is tubes, right? They look like they're just long tubes. And thought, you know, how can I kind of help these people get connected to it? And what I've said for many, many years is, it looks like a tube when it's here, when it's in somebody's hands, you can really be helping somebody fulfill a lifelong dream mm -hmm. or a need. It could be putting meat on the table. I'm a hunter, I'm gonna go shoot a deer, that's gonna help my family have more meat during the winter all the way through somebody trying to maybe just have a trophy animal or do a, a once-in-a-lifetime hunt to, from a competitive standpoint, the ultimate of a winning a gold medal. So we make a product that really helps people fulfill their dreams. And that has been the case ever since your grandfather started the company back in 1922. A legacy that was continued by your dad, Jim, mm -hmm. and a legacy that has fallen on your shoulders in the last 20 years. Yeah. And so I, I think to close out this part of the discussion, where do you see things going in the next hundred years? <laughs> well, yeah, I kind of realized this is probably the, the only hundred-year party I will be at. So same here. Wanted, yes, wanted to come and enjoy it. And um, as I said, I think you know, I the, the future to me for the company and for archery continues to be exciting. We continue to look for ways from a company standpoint of how we can support growth, really from the foundation standpoint, and really trying to even do more there. How can the foundation support and inspire growth in archery? Um, and looking for not just us, but what's that next big idea out there that somebody else has that can help us get more bows into more people's hands and uh, try to create more lifelong archers, people that really you know, come to enjoy and love this sport like we do. And you know, one of those ideas could come from somebody listening to this podcast right now. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think is a hallmark for you is you're willing to listen to people. So yeah. if people would like to generate some thoughts Join us on our Easton Target Archery Facebook page. Um, you can go to Easton Target Archery and just issue your comments in our post about this podcast. And we'll really look forward to seeing what you have to say. If you have ideas for, you know, what you'd like to see from Easton in the next hundred years. Yeah. I think that would be a really interesting thing to Absolutely. get from our listeners. Absolutely. Both from the companies and the product standpoint, but really from the foundation. What else can we do to help archery? Well, Greg, you know, one of the big projects to help commemorate the hundredth anniversary of Easton is something we've been telling our listeners about since the month of April. Yep. And that is that 100-year book, which turned out beautiful, I think. Um, a coffee table book, you yes, know, that, yep. that kind of format. Lots of big pictures. Lots yeah. of big pictures, thank goodness, because I, you know. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things is it's not just about archery. It's about the entire um, scope of what the Easton companies have done. You know, every yes. night, if you look up at the moon, there's stuff that Jim Easton put up on the moon. You That's know. right. Yep. And if you look at 
the Little League World Series, even right now, mm -hmm. or you look at Wayne Gretzky and his stellar legacy of hockey achievement, or maybe you've got a relative who's been um, helped medically by a, you know, a surgical robot. Um, plenty of different things. Maybe yeah. you know somebody who is into mountaineering, or you've got a family member who's a member of the U.S. military. Every one of those people may find themselves encountering a product that came from one of your companies. I believe that uh, you know that is one of the aspects that that book does a pretty good job of helping to explain. It's not just arrows. It's not just baseball bats. For you know, folks, this is the Eastern Target Archery Podcast. But believe it or not, there are people who only know Eastern for baseball bats. That's right. Yeah, or or hockey or, or some hockey. other sport. Over the my decades in the business, meeting different people, and yeah, that book is. It's uh, broken up by the decades, so we you know go from the beginning to current current day, and it's uh, you know it's great to great to see that. But then yeah, we weave through there all the different products we've done, other things we've touched throughout our, our career. Um, some of them very successful, some of them not so much. So it's you know trying to talk about everything. So you know in a, in a way, it's a story of an entrepreneurial family. It's a story of the entrepreneurship of your grandfather, and then the expanded level of entrepreneurship on the part of your dad, Jim. And the things that you carried forth, the sustainable stuff, the the stuff that has really cemented the legacy that has been built over the years. And the book really, I think, does a pretty good job of explaining not just an archery story, not just a baseball story, not just a hockey story, but an American entrepreneurship story. It's a business story in a certain sense. Yep. So it's good for you know fans of, of successful business just as much as it is for the kind of people listening to this podcast who are fans of archery. And I think that uh, it's certainly my pleasure to be able to offer, since we started back in April, if folks had sent in their email addresses, they would be eligible for a random drawing of one of these books. And we're finally here ready to deliver that. Absolutely. And so for this show, this first of the giveaways, we have books going to two individuals. The first one. First one is Robert... Vileka. 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 Very good. Thank you. And the second and, one? And uh, Sarah Toth. Yep. Yeah. So Robert and Sarah, we've got your email addresses. You've got your books coming. We'll get your, we'll get your mailing address and ship it out to you. Um, I hope you enjoy it. It's a book you can kind of read through if you like, or it's one you can pick up off the coffee table and flip open to a page and hopefully learn something. 